If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have a great show for you today with two amazing guests, both of whom, as it turns out, were not only residents at Hopkins with me, but were also chief residents. They're fantastic people, fantastic physicians. And we're going to talk about a, a really interesting topic, which is the transition from being a trainee to being an attending. They've both made that transition, and they've made it very successfully. And so... I think it'll be really interesting to think about how that can be really optimized because many of you listening are either students or residents and you're going to be making that transition at some time and you're going to be really interested to hear some of the tips these guys have. So I want to welcome Dr. Kia Seji and Dr. Stephen Freiberg and let you guys start off by first, let me thank you for being on the show and then ask you just to introduce yourselves a little bit, talk about your background, your training, you know, anything you want to add to what I've already said and, and kind of how you've gotten where you are, what you do now. Yeah, thanks for having us, Jed. Um, so I know you probably can't tell the difference between our voices. Uh, my name is Kia Sedgi. Um, I'm currently a cardiothoracic anesthesiologist at Innova Fairfax, which is in Fairfax, Virginia, just outside of D.C., um, as Jed had said, um, I did my anesthesia residency training at Johns Hopkins and did a chief year as a part of my C3 year. I went from there to Brigham and Women's Hospital, where I did a cardiothoracic anesthesia fellowship. And um, my first job out of training was here at Innova Fairfax, and I've just completed one year of training. So I'm about a year in uh, of experience just out of just out of training. Great. Thanks, Kia. And, you know, I am shocked to just have learned, I think after, you know, what, five years of knowing you and working quite closely with you that I've been pronouncing your name wrong the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. So, no, so yeah, yeah, okay. So my, a very short anecdote. My uncle and my dad still argue the pronunciation. So my dad says Sedgi. And so that's what I've been brought up saying. So, but either way could be correct. Fantastic. Thank you. I will try to keep that in mind moving forward in our friendship and relationship. Thank you. All right. And yeah. folks, uh, frequent listeners of the show will, will know Dr. Freiberg very well. But Stephen, for folks who maybe are tuning in for the first time, why don't you introduce yourself to? Sure. My name is Stephen Freiberg. I am a cardiothoracic and general anesthesiologist in Orlando, Florida. I would say about 60% of my practice is what you would call cardiothoracic, including open heart surgery, heart and lung transplantation, mechanical circulatory support, major vascular surgery, as well as electrophysiology and structural heart 
And then probably the rest of it is a little bit of everything. And I really enjoy that variety of my practice. I get to do OB, neuro, ortho, blocks, a little bit of healthy peds. So I really enjoy that variety. I've been with this position uh, for three years now. I was just recently made a partner, which was very exciting. Congratulations. Um, thank you. But in terms of training, I, as some might know, did my anesthesia residency at Johns Hopkins, as opposed to, and also did a chief year, which I was very honored and humbled to do. As opposed to going north, like Kia did, I just went a little bit further south and did my cardiothoracic fellowship at Duke, which was an amazing training experience as well. And then took that knowledge to Orlando, where I'm originally from South Florida, so kind of kept it somewhat close to home. And it's been an absolute amazing experience. I love the job I have and the people I work with. I've tried very hard and been quite successful in recruiting other Hopkins alum to this practice. We've got a pretty strong Hopkins representation there. And my name, for some reason, provides almost as much trouble as it does for, I guess, Kia's name does, because they it's just butchered right and left, especially when I answer a Spectralink very frequently. And no matter what people say, I'm like, yeah, that's me. I get Dr. Fred, Dr. Frederick. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, it's it's me. What's up? So, <laughs> well, I would not have guessed that, me. but uh, at least I didn't get it wrong. So I'm I'm Correct. proud of myself for that. All right. Well, welcome to both of you. So, Kia, let me start with you and ask you, you know, when you guys were thinking about this as a topic, what led you to think this would be something? I certainly agree with you. This is something that I think will be useful, but why? Why do you think this is good stuff for people to to hear about? Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the cliches that I always got told as a trainee and I kind of brushed it off and thought it was a little bit overblown was that the most you learn uh, in your spectrum of uh, education is actually your first six months to a year uh, coming out of training. Um, and so, I, you know, I'd always kind of thought, well, I don't really, I feel like I'm learning a ton uh, as a trainee. And then once I get to be an attending, it's like, oh, finally, like, you know, weight comes off my shoulders. I pass my exams and like now I can finally just like do my thing. Uh, and, you know, as I've gone through my first year of training, I've started to realize, well, that actually was pretty true. Uh, and so I thought it was a good idea to maybe touch base on some of those challenges that are common and why people talk about why those first six months to a year um, are such a great opportunity for growth and how to set yourself up for success um, because they do come with unique challenges that are maybe a little bit different. We very often, you know, people will comment to say, well, kind of that uh, planning and mentorship and um, wellness thought process stops as a trainee. And why don't we get that when we're in attending? And so I thought, well, if, if that's true, why don't we talk about it and talk about ways that people can kind of set themselves up? Um, so Steve and I kind of talked, and I think that uh, this will be a really good opportunity to discuss those things. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think, you know, we're going to kind of go through three categories of things that you guys have thought about, clinical, interpersonal, and then some kind of grab bag special circumstances. So we'll cover some really good things for folks. Let me ask, you know, when you think about the common stressors, the common sort of, you know, things that people might struggle a little with just you know, as a, as an intro here, going into this transition, what general things come up and then we'll get into our kind of categories. So you guys can, you guys can add on to this of what you thought. I, I think that um, it's somewhat dependent on the person, but there's some common things. So some of the new things like Stephen and I both did, we both went to new institutions after our training. And so being in a new hospital with a new system, a new set of culture, new colleagues, new surgeons, so on and so forth that don't know you, you don't know them, uh, but you come in with a different set of expectations. 
that's a different but somewhat similar transition to maybe where you went from med school to intern year or intern year to CA one year. Um, I think that uh, some of the other challenges that exist, I know for me was very true is, and I know, Judge, you've talked about this a lot, is imposter syndrome. Uh, I think that's a very real thing, and maybe we'll touch on that later. Uh, that definitely, definitely rears its head again uh, when you become an attending. Um, and, you know, some of the other big things, I think 90% of um, the transition comes down to your interpersonal relationships, interpersonal skills, in addition to the kind of practicing the clinical knowledge that you have. So those are some of the big things that I could think of. Um, I don't know if you or Stephen have other ones that you'd want to add to it. Stephen, anything you want to add on there? Those are all great. I mean, changing healthcare system is a huge shift in and of itself, no matter where you go, new people, new EMR, new locations, new PIXIS. I mean, that's an incredibly stressful and challenging time. It can be exciting, but certainly that's a huge stressor in and of itself. And then just learning not only the clinical differences in a place, but the sort of the culture, the expectations, and just the way people interact. It's really pretty fascinating to see how different cultures develop within a healthcare system. And I really think the key things, and we'll touch more in detail, and Kia already mentioned it, is really how you interact interpersonally. Because more likely than not, you're going to know how to do anesthesia. And there will be ways where we can address if there's deficiencies or not. But ultimately, what's going to be remembered is that you show up with a smile on your face, that you're enthusiastic, and that you're flexible and kind of willing to put the work in. I argue that's more important than, you know, how quickly you can do a nerve block or a central line or something like that. So I really can't, you know, emphasize that enough, just showing up ready to work and being flexible. Yeah, I, I think you guys have hit on some really important stuff. I completely agree. And, you know, if you, if you show up at your job and, you know, you can't quite remember the exact technique for that particular nerve block, you know, someone can show you that. That's not a problem. But if you show up and you can't interpersonally connect and make yourself a part and a valued part of that culture in this new place, then that you're done, right? So, I mean, that is really the key. And I'm, I'm excited to hear your guys' thoughts on that. But let's start with the clinical stuff. So, Let's talk about clinically what you guys think are some real kind of tips and tricks for success for someone going into a new place. And I, you made a good point, which is that a lot of these are at, at more true when you're going to a new place. If you do, you know, med school, residency, and then you just stay on as an attending, it's not that that transition isn't stressful and doesn't have its challenges. But I think that if you're going, as you guys said, to a brand new place, that's going to bring with it even more challenges. So I think let's assume that's what we're talking about. And what do you need to think about clinically? So I would say I'll leave this one off if that's okay with Kia, because I have some pretty strong feelings about it. And certainly Kia can chime in. But I actually think establishing clinical excellence starts well before your first job. That starts by maximizing your training, because I really feel strongly that more important than the name that's stamped on any hospital, and this is something a mentor told me, is that you yourself determine the sort of anesthesiologist or clinician that you want to be. You get in what you put out. So I say, you know, try and learn as much about everything as you can and to be facile in as much as possible. Because unless you have a very well carved out path and you've done years of pain research and you're going to be a pain physician, and that's great if you do, you never necessarily know what 
a job is going to expect of you. And even if you do have a pretty definitive path, I think to broaden your expertise and knowledge is the one of the best things you can do to prepare yourself. More specifically, I would say really quickly about your weaknesses and try to work on them. Challenge yourself by stepping up to tough cases or uncomfortable situations and push the boundaries for your knowledge deficits in areas that you're not as comfortable in. And I would also say kind of in conjunction with that, try to spend time in subspecialty rotations other than what you're planned focus or fellowship in. So as tempting as it might be to, you know, you're going to do, say, a cardiac fellowship, do lots of extra cardiac to get ahead. And I can certainly understand that. And I think it's reasonable to be prepared for your fellowship in your residency is probably the last opportunity you'll have to get the other experiences and clinical knowledge outside of that focus that you develop. So just using the example of cardiac, think about taking extra time to do peds or blocks or neuro or whatever it might be to really help round yourself out because that makes you that much more marketable and skillful in the job search and eventually the job opportunity. And believe me, though the distance behind me becomes greater and greater so much that it surprises me uh, from when residency concluded, I certainly remember what a grind it can be. And some days it's just so easy to you know, phone it in, come in, push the Brobofol, push the tube in, turn on the SIVO. And you know, obviously we're always vigilant anesthesiologists, but not to really push yourselves to try and maximize every case. And so and I understand how tough it can be, but just try and think every day, what is today going to be about? Can I make my wake up absolutely pristine? Can I have train track hemodynamics all the way throughout? Can I do all my intubations with fiber optics today? You know, obviously those are dependent on the attendings you work with or the clinical situation, but really try to maximize every day. And I know it's hard to do so. Another important thing is if you have a position lined up, find out the areas you might be expected to perform and see if those are things you need to work on. If you have a position lined up, then say, hey, we're so excited to have you, but just letting you know we've got a busy ortho service and every surgery gets a block, it might be worthwhile to you know, find some extra block time or what have you. So I really think even when you get those days when it's not, quote unquote, the most challenging case You'll be amazed, or perhaps not, you know, a lot of what you'll end up doing as an anesthesiologist, whether in private practice or not, is sometimes not always the exciting, complex cases, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. One of the things that I, quite funny enough, wish I knew more about going into practice was some more of the bread and butter cases that, you know, at a place like Johns Hopkins, you might do a lap coli, but that person probably has, you know, Ehlers-Danlos and end-stage pulmonary hypertension or what have you, to develop a skill set where you can do 14 endoscopies in a day or six lap coles is another important one. So even when you get those sort of assignments that it's very easy to be like, oh, another boring day in endo, I can't emphasize how important it is. So to sort of sum up all of my blabbing there, I just think really try to push yourself every day and ask yourself, how can I make myself the best clinician I can and that return on investment will just be invaluable. Yeah, those are great points, Stephen. And, you know, I would echo all of it. I'll just emphasize one thing that, you know, you said, which is being willing to put yourself in those uncomfortable, challenging situations. It's very tempting for all of us at every stage, resident, early tr- attending, you know, all the way up to avoid things that might make us look bad. And this gets back to that imposter syndrome Kia was talking about. But ultimately, 
this is your chance. Make the mistakes so you can learn from them. Put yourself in those situations where you might not be really good and ask your attending, hey, you know, I'm a little unclear about the best way to do this. I'd love to get your feedback and your advice so you can learn because, you know, there's that's it, right? You get out there and it's a lot harder to learn once you're not in a training program. So I think being willing to do that, having that learning mentality and not being afraid to do something you're not good at or, or perform in a way that may not be super expert, but that's the point. You're not supposed to be an expert. You're a trainee. So don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of being seen as an imposter and it'll, you'll, you'll really pay off. Um, all right. What else do we want to put under the clinical bucket? One thing I really quickly wanted to just kind of tie the, the bow on with that uh, or close the loop on would be the, the uh, point of emphasis I would make, Judd, would to be to say that a challenging or a, a case that you're not as familiar with doesn't always equate to a high-risk patient, right? So, like, a challenging case doesn't have to be the ASA 4 or 5. As Stephen kind of alluded to, your area of deficiency or discomfort may come from the ASA 1 where you have 10 endoscopies that you're supposed to do in two hours, right? And how do you efficiently put somebody in a position where they can do you know, 10 EGDs in an hour or in two hours or whatever the time frame is. Um, I think as most training programs and most trainees, we often really uh, tend to reach out to those big sick cases. This is a resident level case, tends to me it's complex or it's challenging. Um, and I think at a fault to that is sometimes we don't get these bread and butter, more efficient necessity outpatient type of cases, unless you challenge yourself to want that type of thing. Or if you're in that position for the day or a week, on your ambulatory rotation, don't necessarily treat it like it's just a, a cakewalk of a week or a vacation type of week. Really set yourself up for success, which is what you and Stephen were both saying, because it'll come around. You will get to do those cases. You know, I I, um, I felt much, much more comfortable with the ECMO uh, initiation case or the VAD case that I had to do as an attending than I did going to endoscopy in my first week, because that's what I had been doing for a year and that's what I'm familiar and comfortable with. Um, so you really need to set yourself up for success. And some of that takes some introspection and some uh, some willingness to challenge yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. All right. What else do we put under this kind of clinical bucket? So I think let, what I would – oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Stephen. No, I was going to say I'll let Kia take this one away. <laughs> uh, so I, this is very uh, uh, relevant to this kind of these first six months to a year that I just went through. Uh, and I think it actually is a very, very hard thing to do, um, but it's a – I was told, and I, I truly believe that you should trust your trust your training. Um, you got to this point, and we've said this a few times already, but the clinical aspect of things isn't going to be necessarily the deficiency for you. It's um, it's something you've trained for for four years. You've taken your exams. You should be confident. You should feel comfortable with your knowledge base. Um, if there's something that you're not, you should feel comfortable asking and being honest and open. But at the end of the day, um, trust your gut. As cliche as that sounds. Um, you deserve to be where you are. Um, simple, straightforward anesthetics, even to start off on your first uh, few months or a few weeks or in the first year, uh, are always a safe option. You don't necessarily have to change the way you do your practice as long as it's within the spectrum of safety. Um, but to most certainly trust your experiences and your own feelings. Um, I think that's the issue, and we've said this now a few times, and maybe this is a good opportunity to talk about it, this, this um, feeling of imposter syndrome is a very real thing as an attending. I actually felt it very much so as a fellow. And I think it's probably in an uh, a situation where you leave your home institution for the first time because you've grown up in a certain place and become confident and comfortable. 
And now you're met with all these new expectations, people who don't know you, surgeons who don't know you. And it's very challenging to, I think, trust yourself and to trust the training that you've gone through. And so I actually just recently listened to your your podcast, Jed, on the transition from an intern to a CA1 and talking about all those challenges a CA1 faces. I think they're very real for a new attending. They kind of pop their heads up back again, even if you got over this imposter syndrome as a resident, it can pop up again. Uh, it can certainly be something that's difficult to face. And I'll ask maybe you and Steven for kind of what your idea, I have some ideas for strategies, but I'd like to hear what you guys think is ways that you can combat that imposter syndrome or different ways that you can um, you can trust yourself going forward. Steven, you want to add anything? I don't think so. It was, you know, I think time is your friend in this sort of case. And to reiterate points, I mean, you deserve to be the place that you are. Trust in your training, believe in yourself, you know, go with safe and aesthetics that you're comfortable with. And it's just as you know your limitations, you know, it's fine to ask for help. And I guarantee any place you go, you know, as difficult as it can be to say, hey, you know, I, I think it was my second day, someone handed me a difficult airway letter. And I said to one of the much more senior anesthesiologists, like, hey, do you mind popping into this room when I go to sleep? And no one blinked. No one asked a question. Just, yep, be right there. And, you know, I think that's what any sort of group is going to look for. They want to know that you as a clinician are safe and they want to provide good patient care. And so as much as you, you know, deserve to be somewhere and trust yourself, know that there are people who want to see you succeed because it ultimately all comes down to providing great care to the patients. Yeah. And, you know, I agree with all of that. And I'd say in my mind, the most important thing to combat imposter syndrome is for all of us to be willing to admit when we don't know something and to talk about our failures, to talk about our mistakes. I make a point of this, as you two probably remember, right off the bat at the very beginning when our CA1s start with us and I tell them about a bad outcome I had when I was an intern and how that felt and, and you know how hard it was and how I didn't want to tell anyone uh, because I was so embarrassed and so sure that if anyone found out, they were going to think I was a terrible doctor and didn't deserve to be in the training program. But talking about that is so important because then other people realize that, hey, everybody makes mistakes. And it's even more important for more senior people and program leadership and group leadership to talk about it, right? Because then people who are new are going to think, oh, okay, you know, it's not, it's, everyone has felt this way. Everyone has made mistakes. Everyone, by the way, also is going to, at some time or another, have a bad patient outcome. And that doesn't mean you're a terrible doctor. So, you know, this is part of what we do. We need to talk about it and that will help everyone feel like they can talk about it too. And when it happens to them, they won't feel like they need to quit or that they don't deserve to be there. So this is really key. And I think organizations need to set this culture where they organize time for this, make a point of leadership doing it right off the bat. And I think it makes a really big difference. So that's my best advice on how to start combating this because it exists everywhere. Yeah. Being part of a supportive group is really important. I, I, I won't speak for the two of you. I know that I feel very supported in my in my practice. And I think kind of as you both had alluded to, speaking up um, actually says a lot more about what people think about you. If they know that if there's a situation where you're not comfortable, you're going to speak up, you're going to say something, that actually shows more safety, more confidence than it does that their question well, why did we hire this person? They should know how to do this, you know, or why are you asking me all this stuff? It actually opens up more doors for them to say, hey, you know, this is how I used to do it. I've, these are the troubles and the problems that I've run into. I once did a case where X happened and 
you start to feel a little bit more comfortable in that way. But the the initial onus would be on you to trust yourself, but then also trust your limitations and speak up. Yeah, absolutely. I, I say to our residents, you know, the, the most impressive thing, honestly, that a resident can do for me is not nail the A line or the central line or, you know, do the intubation perfectly. It's saying, you know, I'm not really comfortable with this or I don't really know how to do this. Could you walk me through it? Being willing to admit that is way more impressive than being really good at some procedures. So, you know, that's really key. And I think that's going to be true anywhere. Like Steven said, I bet the fact that he said that early on with that difficult airway, right? He asked that other attending, would you mind helping out? I bet not that, even though people would be afraid to do it because they think, oh, he's going to, they're going to think I'm no good. I bet that those senior attendings thought, oh, we got a good one here because he's willing to ask for help when he needs it. So, you know, that's the key. Let's talk about flexibility. Stephen, you mentioned this early um, up front as a, as a real key. Tell us a little more. What did you mean that it's important to be flexible? I think it's so important because that to me was actually a pretty significant change coming out of training. Because even though, of course, in training assignments change and you might be asked to do a case that's different from the rotation at your own, things are pretty, I'd argue, scheduled and regimented and that doesn't necessarily change a lot. So, you know, if you're on your neuro rotation, you will probably be doing neuro cases, you know, if you're obviously a bit different if you're an intensivist, but if you're in the ICU, you'll stay in the ICU. I found that when you're in attending and depending on how your group is structured or you're a little bit more organized into pods or subspecialties, but things just change so much, whether it's your assignment, whether the surgeon changes his plan mid case, whether, you know, you're changed the nurse anesthetist or the resident that you're assigned to work with. There's just, I felt like that was very different from the comparative predictability you had during training. And I think it's just so important just to be able to say, you know, hey, got it, no problem to a change, which probably doesn't seem like much to be able to say it probably won't garner much attention. But the converse to where if someone says, hey, Stephen, sorry, I need you to go start a case in room 14, not 12, like I initially said, if I were to stomp my feet and say, oh, I already set up my you know, propofol and I was going to do a TIVA and now I'm going to have to move all that over, that sort of stuff gains a lot of attention quickly. Um, and it's not the sort of negative attention you want to garner. So I think just as long as what you're doing is safe, which we've talked about, I think any person who took the maximum effort in their training uh, can perform safe anesthesia, that just being flexible, easy to work with, willing to change things up if needed, it just takes you so much farther than your actual sort of, you know, clinical skill virtuosity will. Yeah, I think those are great points. And it applies, you know, to anyone. If you, it's the, I think we talked about this also in kind of how to be a star resident, right? I mean, sure. being flexible, being willing to, you know, help out, be a team player, all that stuff makes such a difference. Let's talk about kind of being an asset in general. How can you be an asset? You're joining a new group or a new department. How can you be an asset? What do you guys think? What's, what are the keys to really being seen as, as a great new hire? I think I'll, if it's okay with Kia, jump on this one as well. I think what's so important when you, either if you're staying on at a place that you trained at, or if you're going somewhere else, it's kind of assumed and expected that you'll be a great clinical anesthesiologist, right? They wouldn't hire you if if they didn't expect you to be. So you have to ask yourself, you know, what else can I do to bring value to my group, my hospital, what have you? And I really like uh, a phrase from Dr. Jimmy Turner, who you've had on your show, Jed. Um, he has what's called a hell yes policy. And I would say look for things that make you say, 
you know, hell yes, this really excites me. Whatever that is, it could be quality, it could be administration, research, advocacy, um, you know, whatever it is that really makes you excited outside of the operating room and really try to take that and run with it. Because if you sort of identify either a niche that needs to be fulfilled and then deliver on it, or just that you really sort of embrace a niche and show that amount of value, that's just another thing that can really cement your position with a group as well as potentially create new opportunities for yourself. Yeah, uh, that's, you know, I think just really well said um, and important to keep in mind. You want to be seen, right? You're, you're new. You're the new person. You want to be seen right off the bat as someone who is valuable, who is, you know, hey, we're really glad we hired that person. Um, what do you think? Uh, caveat, ter- sorry, Jed, the yeah, yeah, caveat I'll make to that is that sometimes as a new person, what you will also have to navigate a little bit is when you're offered opportunities that might not interest you. Right. So, you know, I say sort of I agree with that policy that only do something if it really excites you, but also know you have to navigate that sort of situation a little bit to still look valuable to either think about if someone says, hey, you know, Stephen, we really want you to head up our breast surgery ERAS program. You know, breast surgery might not be my biggest passion, but as opposed to saying, like, no, I'm not into it. Uh, flat out say, you know, I'm not sure if breast surgery is really where I would be the most useful, but really love to take charge of the cardiac rest program or something to that effect. So you still want to appear as someone that's a go-getter and looking to bring value to the group, um, just knowing occasionally you might have to, you know, navigate being offered opportunities that might not interest you as much. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think learning to say no is really important too. I think that sure. plays a bigger role a little little down the road. I mean, it's not that you, you don't want to say yes to everything because then you're not going to do anything well. But you, you do want to embrace as much as you can, I think, up front. And then as you become more senior, you can start narrowing things down and, and start saying no more frequently. Um, all right. So when you think about, you know, we talked about this idea of imposter syndrome and being willing to ask for help, kind of knowing your limits. What, what do you think is, is kind of key there? Are there any, any more details you guys want to give in terms of knowing when, when you need help and knowing your limits and how that plays in? What I would say on this one, I think we've really hit pretty well the component of sort of knowing your individual limits and knowing when to ask for help in the sort of clinical situation. But I think equally important is you have to sort of learn the limitations of the system because that will help you determine how you can best succeed in that system. The example I often think about, and it was a great one once discussed by Dr. Michael Grant, whom you all might know well, is that, you know, there's a lot of excitement in a lot of areas of anesthesia for, especially for abdominal surgery, thoracic surgery, for thoracic epidurals, right? It can be this great technique for enhancing recovery, post-operative pain, what have you. But if you don't have a robust pain service with which to help manage those epidurals post-operatively, that's going to fail, right? So to come in and be guns blazing, saying, I'm going to put thoracic epidurals in all my patients could also be a great project for you to bring to the group. But on the other hand, you know, understand that that might not work here. Um, and that's fine. Once again, as long as you understand what you're doing is safe, just understanding some of the limitations of the system with which you work is also very important. Yeah, great. Kia, anything to add there? Hang in there. We'll be right back to hear what Kia thinks about that. Stay with us. 
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. No, I was actually going to say the exact same thing. I think Steve and I were thinking on the same page. I, knowing the limits of a system and understanding that uh, there, a lot of the times there's much more that goes into your in, immediate decision will take you a long ways. Uh, just like Stephen, I kind of said, putting in that epidural, it takes much more than just the actual epidural placement. It's the whole system that's involved in taking care of it. Um, part of this takes time, right? Like you're not going to be able to show up on day one and understand what the system is at the place that you're at. But with time, try to keep an open mind and open ears to understand the way that they do things or the culture of the group and why those things are the way that they are. And that allows you, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but that allows you to then eventually start to think about the ways you'd like to enhance or improve that system that already exists if there are opportunities. But you have to know what that system is uh, and first and before you're able to actually change anything if you want to. Yeah. And let's say that, you know, you notice something that you don't think is good or you don't like. Is it okay to complain when you're the new guy? I think what's so important is just how you address it because, one another way that you can bring value to the group is under is recognizing places that are problematic or that can be done better but what i think is just important is that you frame it and frame yourself as a solutions oriented person to go to a senior physician or partner and say hey you know your pre-op workflow is garbage accomplishes nothing right and it makes you seem like a whiner or a complainer versus to say hey you know I really think we could improve our pre-op workflow if we were to, you know, have the patients check in 30 minutes before or what have you, I think is so much more powerful um, in addressing things that can be done better than to just, you know, complain or whine about them. Yeah. I mean, that is so key. You know, I, I can tell you that it's very challenging as a leader when someone comes to you and just complains with no attempt to give a potential solution or any idea of where they think it might go or how they think it might be better. It's very, very challenging. And so, you know, I agree. I think you want to, it's fine. In fact, I, I think a good leader should be looking for those that kind of feedback from their group. But ideally, it would not be phrased as this is terrible. What's the matter with you? It would be phrased as, hey, here's some ideas that, I, you know, if you're interested, I think we might be able to improve things. It's showing that you're invested in, in the group and invested in your practice and your system, right? So I think if you're if you're just coming to complain and you're venting, that doesn't help anybody. But if you're showing that you're th at least thinking of ideas, even if those ideas don't work right away or aren't necessarily the best, showing that you're invested in your practice will also carry you a long way because it shows that you care, not only just about your clinical acumen, but also about the, the quality and the longevity of whatever practice or group or hospital system that you're in. Yeah, great. Say a few words about clinical mentorship. 
What do you look for when you're thinking about mentorship in the clinical realm? So I, I think um, mentorship can mean a whole host of different things, and you can have different types of mentors in different elements of your life and in your practice, right? So uh, you, you kind of touched on the clinical part. Um, I think a, a good clinical mentor is somebody that you can connect with, that you can be honest with. Uh, and that has your best interest in mind. And those are people that you can try to seek out. Uh, they, you may have a faculty member that's uh, assigned to you as a mentor. You may have somebody who has similar research uh, or clinical interests as you do. Uh, but seeking out uh, a mentor early on and then thinking about what you want your one, five, ten-year career goals to be and try to involve your mentor in ways that they can try to help you accomplish those goals know that your mentor may change or you may have multiple different mentors to help you with different goals or even in the same goal. Uh, but the, the point is to try to identify people that you can have in your corner that you can turn to, whether that be for clinical support where you ask them questions that you may not be comfortable asking other people for, or it can be people that will advocate for you uh, for a certain um, job that you're interested in, for a certain committee that you want to be on, or for your own uh, career aspirations. But you know, I think as isolating as anesthesia can be, Mentorship, in, in addition to kind of the collegiality of your group, helps you uh, with some of the wellness part of your of your job and your satisfaction is to have somebody and have a system that, you know, is supporting you as an individual and as a professional. Yeah, can't agree more. The importance of mentorship in any new position or not even new, just any position you're in is, is huge, 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 huge. And you really want to go get out there and look for mentors and uh, don't be afraid to ask people. I think people are really flattered and, and honored to be asked to, to be an advisor and mentor for people. So, you know, that's, it's hugely key to the, your happiness, as you said, and success. Let's talk about ongoing learning. Obviously, one piece of that is to have mentors you can learn from. Like, let's talk about other tips you guys have for how to keep learning throughout your career. Cause certainly training is not the end of learning. Yeah. So I, I, was um, I was thinking a lot about this. Actually, there's an interesting Harvard Business Review tip for their new grads. It's not even medicine related, but um, I thought it really summed up things nicely. Nicely, and it's that when uh, what you learned in training is a foundation for future for future learning, nothing more. And I kind of touched on it uh, earlier on. I thought, you know, man, I'm I'm tired. I'm done with training. I feel like I've climbed the mountain. I've reached the top. Finally, you know, I've I've graduated. I've passed my exams. Um, and now I, I can kind of just practice and I'll, I'll kind of learn on the go as it, as it is. Um, it's hard because as a trainee, you also have your exams, um, and your, your pressure to kind of study in addition to learn clinically. And, you know, we, we all know the different pressures and challenges that trainees feel at different levels. Uh, it's extremely important to not stop that process. Think medicine changes, right? So keeping up to date with newly published guidelines, new investigations, changing the way or challenging the way that you practice um, is vitally important to continuing to succeed and to, to optimize your ability to care for patients and to push your own practice forward. Um, that's either keeping up with reading, keeping up with podcasts, plug for ACRAC, uh, seeking out different opportunities to attend different lectures or workshops, um, really using those opportunities to maybe push yourself a little bit further than you may have already felt. You know, there is, I think, that initial lull when you first become an attending, and that can be uh, very enticing to want to just kind of coast for the first few months. Um, 
but it is it is an opportunity to be able to maybe see new approaches that other attendings have been doing that you may not have noticed if you're at your own institution or if you're at a new institution, seeing the way that people have done things there or that trained uh, at uh, locations other than where you trained. And you try to identify people whose clinical practice you hope to maybe emulate, and they can also serve as mentors or resources for you going forward. But all of that is with the context of you trying to improve and trying to continue to learn and understanding that process will never stop. You just learn how to uh, optimize it and manage it best for yourself. I think that's huge. I mean, you know, when I was a new teacher and folks may know I was a high school teacher before medical school, when I was a new high school teacher, I heard about this teacher who just was like thought of as one of the best teachers in that school and just every, the kids loved him. Other teachers spoke highly. And I took a free period a few different times and just asked him if I could come just sit in the back and watch. And I did the same thing as a new attending where, you know, you guys would know, of course, uh, one of our really just incredible clinical attendings, Dr. Scott Mittman. And, you know, he's kind of known for a lot of things, but one of them is the, his approach to awake intubations. And, you know, one time I was, I had some time, I heard he was doing one and I just asked if I could come and watch, you know, and just seeing how he took his resident through it, seeing his technique, you know, that stuff is so valuable. So, you know, take advantage of that. I think is huge. Um, all right, Stephen, anything to add before we move to interpersonal uh, domain? No, I think that was great. All right, so let's talk about the interpersonal, because as we said up front, I mean, this is huge, right? All the clinical stuff, it, the good news is a lot of that stuff, if you don't have it, you can get it. You can learn it. You can observe and learn and, and all that. The interpersonal, I mean, I think you can learn that too, but it's, uh, you got to really pay attention because it's, it's, a, it's different and I think even more uh, crucial. So let's talk about that. Um, who wants to start us off about what's important interpersonally? I can try and jump off here because I think it's a very challenging but important balance to try and strike of being confident but also humble, right? As we spoke about, you know what you're doing, you trust your training, but be open to new things, being flexible again. What I can say is a sort of specific example because I promise you anyone will find this gets old really quick. No one wants to know where you came from in this, unless oh, I think we lost Stephen for a sec there or at the Brigham. This is the way we do it. Or Duke, this is how it's done. Am I back? Yep. You're back. So you were saying, you know, no one wants to hear you say, Hey, this is how they did it where I came from. Correct. I think it's completely appropriate to say, Hey, I'm not familiar with that technique. Can you show me? It's ultimately, you know, communicating the same thing, but it's just a little bit of attention to detail and, how you present yourself and how you interact with others. And I think just trying to strike that balance of confidence and enthusiasm, but also humility is pretty key. Um, a great advice I got as a CA3 was that for the first six months, you know, so even a year, practice safely, but try to adapt, you know, to the way your new home does things. Because I think once they, you establish a confidence in sort of the expected or more commonly viewed anesthetics or techniques, it's a little bit easier to introduce new things. Another really key component, especially I would argue unique to anesthesia from an interpersonal standpoint, is being able to be collaborative and empowering, especially when you're working in a care team model. So if a resident who you've never worked with or a nurse anesthetist, um, probably even more so with nurse anesthetists who are used to practicing and are no longer in training, is comfortable and anesthetic, and it's a safe anesthetic for the patient, it's probably not necessary that you insist it 
change to the anesthetic that's your preferred method or that you're used to doing. In fact, that's an opportunity for you once again to increase your learning and your knowledge of how to do things another way. And I think that is so valuable to make people feel involved in the care team, especially if there is something you're concerned about. So if you feel very strongly that a patient needs you know, a certain anesthetic or a certain technique or there's a certain comorbidity you're worried about, I think it can be so powerful to say to the person who's working in your care team, I think the patient would really do great with X or I'm very concerned about Y. How do you think we can best manage these issues? And I think that establishes so much communication, but also trust and respect for your other clinician skill set. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, and I love that, you know, you, you touched on kind of the interpersonal skill of, of being willing to be flexible when it's okay and safe, right? So there may be times where you need to step in and say, I'm not, I, you know, I, I just am not comfortable with that plan as you've presented it. But other times, as you said, where you may think, well, that wasn't what I was going to say, but I don't see why not, right? That'll also work. And uh, being willing to have that flexibility and not stomp on other people's plans when they're perfectly reasonable, whether that's your resident or CRNA or whoever it may be, it can really go a long way to building building important relationships. Um, all right. What else in the interpersonal realm? I think it's so important that you're not only patient with yourself, as this is a growing and learning process, but also being patient with others. Because remember, just as you're potentially getting used to a new set of surgeons, nurses, techs, practices, cultures, et cetera, everyone else is also getting used to you and your personality and your practice and style as well. And similarly, if a surgeon has preferences, one has to remember that as anesthesiologists or anesthesia professionals, we don't really generate business for a healthcare institution. It's just not the nature of how surgical practice works. So we kind of have to remember that we have two customers. And yes, the patient is always our primary customer, but the surgeon in many ways is our customer as well. So rather than assume that a surgeon is being steadfast in a certain thing, that it's because they're arrogant or whatever, understand that they've probably built their reputation of doing cases a certain way or what they believe works best for their patients and has allowed to attain good outcomes. So I think it's very valuable to try and be flexible to their preferences, once again, assuming that things are reasonable and safe, because they probably have a pretty good reason for doing it that way. Yeah, makes it makes a ton of sense. And, you know, again, to just say, I'm going to fight on fight on this just so I can kind of put my foot down and, and not feel like my ego got bruised doesn't make sense, right? You, you don't have to fight the fight. You want to choose your battles. It's a really important skill to have. Absolutely. I think just to touch base, uh, to, to add on to that really briefly, um, I think developing those relationships with the surgeons, especially when you're starting off as a new attending, is extremely important. Right, Showing that you have an investment in their cases and their uh, patients, and then also maybe you know spending some time learning the technique that they are doing that may not be the same way that you watch the surgeons at your institution doing things. Um, being able to develop those relationships with surgeons both in and out of the hospital or in and out of the operating room immediately will also take you a very long way, right? So if you're able to get on a good page or have good rapport with the surgeon, there's times of crisis and when things aren't going uh, very smoothly in the operating room, 
it became it, it creates a much more smooth and steady teamwork model in the OR versus a finger pointing kind of condescending it's you versus me situation. Um, you know, most of us won't get into um, really big arguments or fights with friends uh, if we understand where each other are coming from. And it's kind of a similar thing. If you're if you're with your teammate in the operating room, um, you understand that they're under certain constraints and what they're working for. And they understand you as well. It creates a much better dynamic to work for. So I would emphasize that being able to spend time learning the surgeons, them learning you and uh, maybe some personal time if you're able to will take you a really long way. Uh, and then not only being patient with them and other staff, but also being patient with yourself, understanding that you're going to make mistakes. This is, it's going to happen to everybody. You're going to do things. You're going to have complications. You're going to feel really stressed about those complications and about those mistakes, but it's okay. Everyone does it. The biggest thing is to be able to learn from them. Seek out feedback from those mentors, from more senior members of your group, even from people who are your cohort or just graduated with you. Be open, talk it out with people, because that is what's really going to allow you to maintain a healthy mental state as you go through and continue to push yourself and continue to learn. Yeah, great. All right. What else falls in the interpersonal realm? I think it's just so important to be polite and kind to everyone. And this sounds obvious, but it's easy to get stressed in the course of the day or what have you. But while it might seem, uh, I, I dare say, more important or more at the front of your mind to, oh, I obviously need to be polite to my surgeons and I need to be polite to my co-anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists. You really, if it's not you know natural to you, if you're a more quiet person, make the effort to extend a smile and that kindness to the nurses, the techs, the ancillary staff the environmental staff. You can't imagine what it will do for your reputation in a good way as someone who is known to arrive with a smile, someone who always says hi to the person mopping the floors who, you know, on their way in, who says please and thank you, who helps put the monitors on when they get to pack you. All these things really uh, go a very long way in establishing yourself as a trustworthy and valued member of any healthcare team. Yeah, absolutely. Keep them coming. These tips are great. I mean, the best piece of advice that I got in this kind of realm that Stephen was talking about is to, you know, it's easy in anesthesia to think of yourself as kind of an isolated individual in the operating room. But if you think about the a team-based approach, and that's inclusive of your nurses, your techs, your surgeons, your staff, um, being nice to people, and it sounds a little cynical, but being nice is good business, right? So it helps you, uh, your own your own interests and your ability to care for patients if you have a good working relationship with people. And being able to be nice, and if you're lost or you're stressed, it's much, much more likely that someone's willing to help you or lend a helping hand in those instances where they notice that you need it versus a situation where you're kind of an adversary uh, to, to somebody else. But thinking about it as a team approach to things will take you a long way in that politeness and kindness, even in those times where you're tired, where you're stressed and you're just um, you're kind of showing your stress verbally or maybe uh, emotionally. Yeah. How about timeliness? Is that important? It's so important, and I, it's kind of nice to talk about this one because it's sort of discreet in terms of talking about it when a lot of the things we're talking about it, and you know, some might categorize as soft skills, not to say that they're any less important. But I'm routinely shocked by the frequency with which, I guess you could call it, you know, modern professionals. I don't know if that makes us millennials or Gen Z or I don't know, but whatever it might be, people are always late, and it just amazes me what that sort of sets yourself up for in terms of your opportunity for success and your reputation. And look, 
obviously emergencies happen, things happen. And I think the majority of people are understanding to that. But on average, you know, on your first day, your first week, it's probably worthwhile to give yourself a little extra time in the morning to find your way around and things like that. And I can just give a personal example that I sort of, I would say, was miscommunicated my way into arriving late on my, uh, sorry, not my second day. It was my third day. My second day was my difficult airway. Stephen, we lost you again. Which there. is not an awesome feeling to uh, to start on your third day. So again, just do what you need to do, you know, barring sort of life's many unusual circumstances, but just showing up on time and, you know, certainly early, really a lot of your professionalism. Yes, you cut out for a minute there, Stephen, but I think you were saying on your third day, you ended up kind of through a miscommunication, arriving late uh, and got called by the head of the group. So obviously not the way, not the way you want to start. So, you know, come early. This is uh, something my wife makes fun of me for because I'm so the opposite. I, I would rather be 15 minutes early than one minute late. And, you know, I, that's so I'm on an extreme, but, but I just think it's so, so key. And, and every once in a while, you know, I'll have orientation with our new residents. The first time meeting me as their program director, you know, as a resident and sometimes every once in a while, somebody will come late and it's just like, how could you be late to that? I mean, how could you want to have that be the first impression that you leave? And I get that things happen, your car, you know, breaks down, I mean, whatever. And it's not like we hold it against people forever, but you know, you want to plan for those things. You want to assume you're going to hit all the red lights on your way. So you leave early enough that if you do hit all the red lights, you're still on time. Don't assume you're going to hit all the green lights uh, because then if you hit red lights, you're going to be late. Um, all right. We talked some already about being a team player. What's that mean? How can you do it? So I think I'll, uh, I'll say you want, we've touched on this a few times, but striving in a manner that makes your group feel like um, they were thrilled to be able to recruit you will take you a really long way. This may seem obvious, but help out when you're needed. If colleagues need help with covering calls or if um, colleagues need help with breaks in their rooms or, you know, these are the types of situations where if you're able to, obviously, within certain reason, step up and help out your teammates, uh, because this attitude will take you extraordinarily far. And by paying it forward, you're actually creating a situation where you're getting again, getting more people in your corner, getting allies, uh, creating a situation where if you need help in the future, it's that, hey, you know, Steven or Jed is the guy that helped me out at this point and uh, I need to pay it back to them. Or he looks like he's having a tough day or she looks like she's having a tough day over there. I'm kind of free for the next 10 minutes instead of me going to take a break. Why don't I go help them out? Um, and you're creating a collaborative environment by being a team player. It's not that people won't necessarily help you out in general, but you're creating a, a culture for yourself to identify. This is the way that I like to practice. And if, if able, this is the way I'd like to be helped through my practice as well. Yeah, that's so key. We've talked a lot about being, you know, uh, the type of physician who will say yes to opportunities and help out. Uh, we kind of covered that and, and you know, how it's important to be able to say no, but, you know, to really be open to saying yes, especially early on. Anything you guys want to add there? I think we really hit most of it to just tell a little bit of what Key was talking about in terms of being a person that helps out. I think you'll start to learn potentially new ways with which this manifests itself, depending on how your practice is structured or where you're working. But I think that sometimes, again, in training, things can occasionally be more siloed in terms of where you are, where you're located, what you're able to do in terms of helping out. And again, this might be unique to the way my practice is structured, but often what you'll find some of the most, you know, liked anesthesiologists is that they have, if they have time between cases, they just start seeing pre-ops. 
it, you know, it doesn't matter if it's quote unquote their patient or not. They just start seeing pre-ops or, you know, pop into another room uh, to an anesthesiologist or nurse and say, hey, have you had a break? Do you need to step out? All those little things that maybe didn't seem as obvious, I guess, to me when I was in training, just the way things are sort of structured um, are just little ways that you can, again, really be a, a standout new attending. Yeah, great. All right, let's turn to the final category here of kind of special circumstances. And, you know, I think one thing is, are there things that are unique if folks are going academic as opposed to into a private practice that you guys want to kind of highlight here? So I think there's some things that are probably um, academic specific. And I I think, you know, people very classically and um, it's not always necessarily the case, but part of the things that are a little bit more unique in the academic world than they are in the private practice world may be research opportunities or research interests. Um, And so I think that if you are somebody who is interested in research, uh, thinking about those areas of interest early on, maybe some of those areas that either your hospital system or your group or even the field that you're going into if you're subspecialized um, has a need or a need or an opportunity, think about those types of things either as a trainee or early on in your career and try to identify people or mentors that can help you um, help you in that in that goal that you may have. But also to be open-minded uh, to understanding that you know your goals may change, your priorities, your research, all that stuff may change or take on new things that you didn't expect them to. Uh, but ultimately, whenever you kind of come to a to a head of what you think you want, it's extremely important to, I think, stay focused and to have a plan and to work with a mentor to kind of stay organized and stay on track. And if that needs to change, it changes as you go through. Um, but being able to, to have a semi-organized way to go about things will help you um, with a, a, an efficient way forward. Yeah, I think that's key. And, and you know, I guess I, I frame this as academic versus private practice, but obviously you can do academic things in private practice. And, you know, that can be defined pretty widely. And obviously, you know, just one example might be giving a talk, right? I mean, you can certainly give talks at ASA or elsewhere and, you know, then get, if you do a good job and people enjoy hearing you, you get invited elsewhere and, you know, you can kind of be uh, on the, on the circuit, do CME talks, et cetera. So there's lots of ways and, and there's no reason you can't publish in a, in a private practice, um, though that may be more expected in, ac- in an academic job. Um, all right. What about if you're working with residents or trainees? Uh, you guys were relatively recently trainees. What do you think is uh, key to keep in mind there? So we still, I actually still work with some trainees in my practice, whether they're residents, med students, um, or occasionally uh, fellows that come for electives. Uh, just remember what you felt like as a trainee. And it's, it's, it's hard to do that on days where you feel like you have a heavy amount of production pressure, or you're stressed, your patient's really sick. And especially as a new brand, uh, sorry, brand new attending, your impulse to want to take over or to um, give a lesser amount of time for flexibility is is there. But being patient, I think, is probably the the summary of what I would say. You know, we were all just there. Know the limits of when to push and when to give them the balance to be able to struggle a little bit, all within the realm of safety. Right. And I think, and Jed, you can speak more to this than I can, obviously, that takes time of knowing where you draw those lines of safety and when you need to step in. There may be times where you step in a little too early. There may be times where you step in a little too late. And a lot of that is going to come with experience. But I think being able to keep an open mind um, will take you a long way. And then knowing your trainee as best as you can through time will also help you. Where they are in their stage of training is an obvious one learning kind of the interpersonal skills that they may have or how they respond best to feedback or to teaching, what types of learners they may be. 
obviously a lot of that comes as you get to know them a little bit better, but if you can tailor your, uh, your education and your teaching and your focus, I think that optimizes their experience and obviously will then optimize yours and your ability to care for the patient and take care of the resident. Yeah. I mean, obviously I could talk for a very long time about, uh, how to work with residents and, and I won't take a huge amount of time here, but I will say that I think one thing I just add that I think is so key is, you know, start from a place of generosity, give people the benefit of the doubt. If, if a resident makes a mistake, it's almost definitely not because they were slacking off or they weren't prepared. You know, it's almost definitely that they were meaning well, they did their best and anyone else would have made that mistake too. It's probably a systems problem, not a person problem. And if you keep that in mind and try to be generous and supportive in your reaction when things go bad, it makes a huge, huge difference. So a lot could be added, but you know, maybe we'll, we'll stick with that. And let's talk about wellness because that, what we just talked about, right, is being feeling supported by, if you're a resident, by your attending is certainly part of wellness. But what about for folks going into practice? How can they keep their own wellness in mind? So I'll, I'll jump off on this if it's, if it's okay with Steven. I, I, I actually think you could do a whole podcast on wellness in and of itself, whether it's as, as a trainee or as an attending. Yeah, do you, um, do you ever talk about wellness in your, you, you don't know anything <laughs> about wellness, do you? That's right. Yeah. I never talk about it. <laughs> okay. I was, just, I was just checking. I, I didn't, I didn't want to make you feel uncomfortable here. <laughs> yeah. It's also, it's kind of intimidating talking to Jed about what we should do for wellness, but that's true. Um, I mean, I, it, the biggest thing and this, a lot of this is going to be individualized because I can't tell somebody else, you know, what works for them for wellness. But there are some key things I think that are important to keep in mind. Um, one of those things uh, is to stay involved with things that make you happy in life. And that may be within medicine. That may be things outside of medicine. Uh, so for me, I play soccer a lot. So I, I make an emphasis to be able to play soccer outside. That's kind of a stress relief. I see friends um, and it's a, it's a way for me to have some balance in my life. Um, being able to have a cohort of people that are either of similar experience or in the same boat as you, for lack of better word, that you can talk to, that you can vent to, that you can share experiences with, I think is ex- uh, extraordinarily important. I still keep in very close touch with my co-fellows, um, with some of my co-residents and being able to just say like, Hey, this happened to me the other day. Has this ever happened to you guys? Or what would you do in this situation? I think those are some of the invaluable things that you can do. Um, being able to set boundaries for yourself, whether that's clinically or um, at home or in your social life or whatever it is um, are definitely things that will take you a long way. And then maybe I'll kind of punt this one to you, Jed, or to you, Steven, is I think there's different strategies that your group, um, or that your hospital system can try to start to think about to help with physician burnout. And I said this at the very outset, we focus and Jed obviously focuses a lot on resident wellness and resident burnout. That shouldn't stop when you become a faculty member or shouldn't stop when you become an attending. I think we as a field have to do a better job of recognizing that it's a real thing and addressing it in manners that are um, practical and that have long lasting implications, not necessarily kind of short bandaid fixes. Yeah, I agree. I'm happy to say a couple words, uh, Stephen. Anything you want to add? No, I think what's just really important and what helps me try to prevent burnout and stay balanced is I try to think about what my life priorities are and try to spend my time in a way that reflects those priorities. And obviously, it's imperfect. Probably at this stage of my career, I spend more 
actual time, often at work than at home. But I try to make sure that sort of the being present and sort of the quality and emphasis that I put into the time I spend with my family reflects how important that is to me. And so I think if you're the way, either the attention with which you spend your time or even the quantity with which you spend your time reflects the priorities that you have in life is a good way to try and keep yourself balanced and avoid burning out. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, again, you're right. We we could and should do an entire episode on this. So I'll just say a couple of things. One is that, you know, the what the evidence suggests is that wellness and, and prevention of burnout, if, and this is not unique just to medicine, but certainly is true in medicine, is really kind of majorly about two things. One is feeling supported at work. And that is all the stuff we've talked about, having mentors. So, you know, groups need to make sure whether that's, you know, an academic center or a private practice, that they have a system in place so that everyone, especially new hires, ha- feels supported. And then the other is that the leaders are listening and responding to the concerns of the people in their group. So you have to have a system where people in the group feel comfortable going and saying, here, I have a concern, here's what it is, and that they'll be heard and that that concern will be taken seriously and will be responded to. So, you know, there's a lot more to this, but I think those are really two key things. And for folks running running organizations, you have to have that be true in order for your people to be able to avoid burnout and to feel well. And it's it's really key. And we know that even if you're thinking, oh, you know, this is all this feel-good stuff, but people who are burned out, physicians who are burned out, make more medical errors. We know this. There's many studies that show this. So, it's very clear that if you want to have the best patient care for the patients in your practice, you've got to take care of your employees. They have to feel well. You have to avoid burnout so that they take better care of patients and it's going to pay itself back. So you have to have that long view, but it's worth it. All right. So lastly, maybe just say a few words again. Many of these are topics we could do an entire podcast on. We have done many of these and one another one that we've done several podcasts on and that certainly other folks out there have a whole podcast series on is the financial piece and kind of financial planning but you know do you guys want to say just a couple words about how to keep this in mind i just think you know without creating a whole new podcast is just to be thoughtful about the way your finances will change and how you want to incorporate that in your life because it's a amazing but pretty unique situation in medicine to go from a trainee when you're making a much smaller salary than you will soon be making as an attending where your salary might double, triple, even quadruple, which is an amazing, amazing thing. But just have a plan in place or start making a plan about how you protect yourself, protect your family, um, and sort of just set yourself up for financial success in the future, whatever that means to you. But just know it, you know, it is something that takes thought and effort and planning. And so be prepared to do that. Yeah. Yeah. The only other thing I would add is to you don't necessarily feel like you have to be alone in that process. Right. So there are certainly tons of resources, whether they be books or audio or online. There's also people. Right. So there's tons of people either in your practice or your parents or, you know, aunts and uncles. Financial planning isn't something that's necessarily unique to medicine. There are unique aspects of it. But don't feel like you have to go at it alone. Ask as many people as you feel comfortable why they did the things that they do, how they think about their financial and uh, investments, so on and so forth, and then give yourself kind of a thorough, uh, educated approach to what you want to do. Um, but know that you're not alone in that whole process. 
Great. All right. Well, you know, this has just been golden. I love it. So many great pearls for folks out there who are going to be making this transition. So thank you both. Let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. I am really interested to hear what you guys have to recommend to the audience. And uh, I'll just say, since Kia, you're at the top of my screen, do you want to start? (laughs) Uh, Sure. I'm actually going to throw a little bit of a curveball. And so... We did this as uh, as residents, and Jed kind of uh, emphasized it a little bit with some of our our, um, our class meetings. I want to do some shout outs as my random recommendation, because I think in the element of us talking about what it takes to be a successful attending, part of that is your community. Um, it's your your mentorship, all that kind of stuff. So very, very briefly, and I won't uh, I won't belabor it. I just want to do a few shout outs to people. So my shout outs are to my co-residents that I trained with, my co-chiefs, uh, Rika and Jess that I was with, um, my unchained uh, fellows that I was with at the Brigham, all the attendings and mentors at both institutions, and then my current practice uh, at Fairfax with FAA, all the support and stuff that I have felt has gotten me to an area where I feel very happy and very comfortable in the line of work that I'm in. And then lastly, it's going to sound a little bit cliche, but for Jed, because um, I think Jed has been an excellent mentor. I can speak for myself, at least uh, to say, help me get to the point that I am feel comfortable both as a person and as an attending. Um, and so I think that those are my immediate shout outs also to Jillian Isaac. I didn't want to forget her because uh, she's a wonderful mentor that I have. Um, recognize those people in your life and uh, don't be afraid to speak up about it. Uh, it may be the mentors that you have at work. It could also be the environmental staff, especially in this last year, everyone going through different things and different stressors with COVID, shouting out, telling those people, thank you, being friendly, like we kind of talked about, uh, will take you a long way. So that's my that's my quick shout out. And that would be a, my random recommendation is to tell people or to ask people to continue to do that going forward. Thanks yeah, for your very kind words. And, and I couldn't agree more. I think that doing that, we, we so often in life, take time out when we're really upset about something. You know, we tell someone, you know, you screwed up and I'm upset at you because of this or that, but you know, you lost my baggage and I'm going to get really grumpy about, you know, we always do that, but we so rarely take time to point out to the people who we really value that we're grateful to them, that we value them. And so doing that, taking that time, it turns out is of course, wonderful to hear, but it's also as talking about wellness, it's actually been shown to increase the happiness of the person who's doing the thanking. So if you take time out of your day to just shout out like you just did to some people who mean a lot to you, it will help you and it will be very nice for them. I couldn't agree more. I love that as a shout out. Thank you um, as a random recommendation. I mean, thank you, Kia. All right, Stephen, how about you? Well, how do I follow that up? It's tough. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I love the portion of your show where you do recommendations. I'm always writing down things that either you talk about or your guests talk about. So thank you for the recommendation for Ted Lasso. It's awesome. And I just don't know how to tell people that, well, why is it good? I'm like, it's just really good. Um, so thank you for that. But I think my random recommendation, I hope I haven't done this one before, but my very favorite podcast, other than Akrak, obviously, <laughs> is um, it's called The Rewatchables. And it's all the Bill Simmons Ringer Network. And what they do is they just go through different movies. And I'm not sure how they select them, so to speak, other than then what they say is that the movies are rewatchable and they, the classic sort of definition of that. And it's, it's so funny because we've almost lost this in the day of subscription television, right? Is that when you're back in the day, when you're, if you're flipping through the channels and a movie comes on and it doesn't matter if you've seen it a hundred times, you can't get off the couch. It's just rewatchable. And they're not always good movies, 
you know, by, you know, they don't always win Oscars or whatnot, but they do good movies as well. They talk about The Godfather and classic pieces of cinema, but they just spend as much time, you know, breaking down the, you know, the directorial choices of Superbad or what have you. Um, and the folks that he has on his show, his co-hosts, are just pop culture and sports nuts. And I just love everything about it. It, again, gives me sort of the nostalgia of what it used to be like to flip through the channels, the nostalgia of some of these movies that I haven't seen in a long time. They're very, very funny. Um, that's my favorite podcast other than Akron. So if you like movies, if you like pop culture, The Rewatchables uh, is really, really great. That's awesome. Love it. I did not know about that, but we'll definitely check it out. And, you know, I, I'll say mm-hmm. your reference to Ted Lasso, if you haven't seen it, I just, again, we've it's been shouted out so many times, but definitely check it out. And I'll say that this Second season had this one episode. I'm not going to spoil it, but uh, that that worked in so many references to romantic comedies, both movies and TV shows. That it was. I don't know if you guys have seen it yet, but it was amazing. If you're at all into you know uh, those kind of like Notting Hill type movies and and just those kind of references, they just wove it in. It was amazing, hilarious, and and really really great. And then. Uh, you know, uh, the the rewatchables idea with the movies is is amazing. You know, there are some of those movies like that just aren't amazing movies, but that you can't turn off. I love that concept. You know, for me, the other day, uh, Armageddon was on, and I've seen it a million times, but I couldn't, I couldn't stop. They've done um, Armageddon. Totally. Um, well, I will say uh, he's going to push the button at the end. That's right. We won't tell anybody. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll give a random recommendation here. A great article that was uh, published in the New Yorker by Atul Gawande. I'm sure folks know who Atul Gawande is. It was called Costa Ricans Live Longer Than Us. What's the Secret? And it was published on August 23rd of this year. So uh, just a few weeks ago, it was fantastic. Really, really fascinating what Costa Rica is doing, a country that's much poorer than we are. And yet they have a higher life expectancy than we do. And so he breaks that down and what they've done. And there's a ton we can learn from that. Really fascinating article. And of course, Atul Gawande is a fantastic writer. All right, Kia, Stephen, thank you so much. This has been great. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Thanks so much for having us. Always great. Thanks a lot, Chad. Miss you guys. Miss you guys too. Thank you very much. All right. That was fantastic. So great to have those guys on the show. And this was just really rich material that I think will be helpful for a lot of people out there. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com. You can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. You can also join the Facebook group. Follow us on Twitter. We're at ACRAC Podcast. I'm at Jay Walpaw. We've got a great Instagram page as well that you can follow. Check it out. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. You can pledge any amount that you want for each episode. You can also make individual donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jed Wolpaw or maybe Jay Wolpaw on Venmo. Thanks so much to those who have already become patrons and made donations. We really appreciate it. It makes a huge difference. Huge thanks, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, our tech lead, to Ryan Okonski, our fantastic social media manager, and, of course, to our production assistants, Dr. April Liu and Dr. Kimia Kashkuli. Our original ACRAG music is by Dr. Dennis Quo, and you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAG Podcast and Dr. Sedgi and Freiberg, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.